With a new Supreme Court justice, the fall of Roe v. Wade, and a midterm election, 2022 has been quite the year politically. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Reverend Art J. Gordon, pastor and senior advisor for Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. We will hear about Art's journey to pastoring, community outreach and activism, as well as recapping all that occurred politically in the year 2022. Stay tuned for today's episode of Political Evolution. Welcome to Political Evolution, where we explore the past, present, and future of American politics. I am your host, Whitney Richardson, a political analyst, entrepreneur, and lawyer. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Reverend Art J. Gordon. Reverend Art J. Gordon is a fourth-generation Baptist pastor from Georgia and the senior advisor for Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, where he manages stakeholder and community engagement for the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. He attended Savannah State University, where he graduated with a BA in history with honors. After college, he moved to Boston to attend Boston University School of Theology. In 2017, Reverend Gordon was selected as the youngest senior pastor in the 74-year history of the St. John Missionary Baptist Church in Roxbury. During his leadership, he established a community scholarship, partnerships with local organizations, COVID-19 testing, vaccinations, as well as a feeding and a clothing program. He is also the vice president of the Boston Alphas Graduate Chapter, where he received the Brother of the Year Award and the Royal Bowling Community Service Award. All right, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? How are you doing, Whitney? It's good to be with you this evening. And thank you so much for the invitation. I'm doing well, and uh, I'm glad uh, to be here and to engage in some critical conversations about uh, the direction of our country. Yes, I'm so glad to have you. I've been so excited for this. When we first caught up over the phone, I was saying that we should have just recorded that conversation because it was a podcast episode. (laughs) It was a podcast episode within itself. So I'm so excited to share your expertise and get your opinion with the audience. So let's jump right in. So what got you involved in politics in Massachusetts after leaving Georgia? Yeah, so great question. Uh, When I went to Boston after leaving Georgia, I went there to graduate school to study theology at Boston University. And uh, one of the reasons why I chose Boston University is because they had a strong history of students and pastors and activists who were both pastors as well as uh, politically involved individuals. Obviously, their greatest alum is Martin Luther King, but there are many others. And my focus within studying theology was social ethics, which deals around social issues from an ethical and theological perspective. So that was my focus. Uh, and I took a class in ethics and public policy. And it really sort of honed in that religious leaders and activists and really faith leaders have a role to play in the development of politics and, and what it means for making critical and progressive impacts for folks in our community. And I didn't want to go to graduate school just to be a the typical pastor I saw in Georgia. Uh, I wanted to be very, very politically involved. So I, you know, developed a lot of relationships. I went to events. Obviously, church was a was a first good start. And then, uh, you know, at the pastor of my church, I had this real great desire to work on a political campaign because it's on the political campaign where you get to learn who's who and what, what the real issues are. You know, me still being from Georgia, I was slowly identifying myself as a Bostonian. 
and slowly realizing that this is where I wanted to sort of really build or either end my career. So, uh, and by end, what I mean is staying here for the long haul for my career. And uh, I knew the campaign manager for a very important election that was coming up, the uh, 2020 Senate campaign between Senator Ed Markey, who was our current senator, and Joseph P. Kennedy III. Most folks don't know about the Kennedy family, but they've never lost an election in Massachusetts. Wow. And uh, that family lineage goes back um, almost 150 years of politics here. So I worked with Senator Ed Markey's campaign. Long story short, we won. I knew at the end of that campaign, I wasn't done politically. I knew that I wanted to dive in a little bit more, jump in a little bit more, you know, know more of the issue, but also find ways to make real impacts. And then I uh, started working for Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who is, in my opinion, the most important member of Congress. Maybe that's a little bit of my own bias or maybe it's because I live in her district. But that's been a great opportunity because I've been able to hone those skills even more. So that was sort of my introductory into politics in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is one of the political hallmarks across the country. Like this is where you get your teeth grinded. This is where you get the hard work done. And a lot of people have gone on far just by being in politics in Massachusetts. A number of uh, U.S. ambassadors have come out of Massachusetts, a number of uh, people on the federal level, uh, in different uh, areas, as well as, you know, people who study and research and write about politics uh, have all come out of Massachusetts. I, I'm glad to sort of be here to kind of, you know, learn from all these people. Barack Obama spent time here. Michelle Obama spent time here. You name it. And anybody who's been deep in politics uh, has either been here or has stopped through here at some point. So uh, I, I consider that my sort of new heritage uh, as a uh, budding uh, person within political spectrum. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think, one, it's amazing to see you continuing that legacy of pastoring and also with a focus on activism, because for black people, that is the foundation of a lot of our civil rights movements in this country. And, you know, that's a critique that sometimes the church has today that, you know, there isn't as much involvement. So I think it's amazing to see you continuing that legacy there. And if there was a Ayanna Presley fan club, I would be the president of it. I just yeah. absolutely love her, the way that she speaks truth to power and the way that she leads from the heart. And so going into that, what's it like to work for, you know, a high profile member of Congress? Yeah, uh, well, I would say, you know, first and foremost, you know, you, you're doing a lot of learning. You know, I can say I've learned a lot from her. I've learned a lot from my role. And, you know, I'm a lifelong learner. So uh, the, the position allows me to get to know people better, to know the issues better, uh, to be more involved in community, to understand the issues. I've sort of been trained in a sense to read every newspaper outlet, right? Because that's another place outlet where you find out what's going on in the community, who the organizations are, who the key people are, key players are, and who actually needs the help. So I would say I've learned a lot. I had not spent a lot of time in D.C., but anytime I go back to D.C., it's always a full circle moment because 10 years ago when I was still in Savannah um, during the summer in 2012, actually, I was an intern on the Hill. So mm. and I knew all, I wanted to be involved in politics in some way. Uh, I had to figure out how to do it as a pastor. So when people see Red Raphael Warnock now, you know, I've always said to myself, that's kind of what I want to be like. It was just hard trying to envision that because I didn't see anybody else doing that same exact thing. 
to have him there now, now it sort of validates and confirms to me that someone else can do either the same thing or, or something very, very similar. Absolutely. Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, as of last week, and I absolutely, I absolutely love that. Such a rich legacy that you and as well as him are continuing. So speaking of D.C., speaking of the Hill, I want to get your take on this year politically. Um, We find ourselves in December 2022. Feels like we got here so fast. So much has happened. And so what what's your take on this year politically before we kind of get into what we see over the next two years? Yeah, my take on this year politically is, I mean, anytime there's a midterm, it's always tough races. And there's always that fight between who's going to control the House and who's going to control the Senate, Mm -hmm. because that helps to determine what the president can get done in the next two years. And it also determines who might be running in the next two years. So we're in that real transitionary period. And I'm, you know, although the Republicans are taking the House, the Democrats have the Senate, Uh, although one person wanted to be independent all of a sudden. uh, I guess that's their prerogative. And so I, I guess, the, you know, I, I, I think what I'm grateful from from the midterms is that many of the people that Donald Trump endorsed did not win. Yes. So men met odds in Pennsylvania, which is a critical state during the presidential election, did not win. Uh, Herschel Walker, uh, Georgia, which has turned recently blue, uh, although the governor was Republican. And, you know, Stacey Abrams went against Brian Kemp. Stacey Abrams, probably one of the most popular people in the entire Democratic Party. Yes. Uh, lost by a significant number. Yet Reverend Rock, Senator Referee Warnock was able to hold off Herschel Walker. It was a very close race, but I think a lot of Georgians and me, you being from Georgia, knowing Georgia, having went to college in Georgia, I uh, really believe that some Georgians realize, you know, even if I want to vote for Herschel, the guy's just a horrible candidate. <laughs> He's just a bad candidate. You know, and that's not even a partisan uh, state. It, it, it was just true. anything. They kind of opened his mouth. It was like, dude, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> so I'm glad Georgians voted in uh, Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock. And so that was another one that I was really, really concerned about. I believe the the guy who's a uh, Republican senator won in North Carolina, which was close. But, you know, he won that. And then down in Florida, you got Governor DeSantis, who won again and won in big numbers. You know, he went against Charlie, I think his name is Charlie, Charlie Chris. Mm-hmm. Chris had a lot of experience. I think he was uh, a former congressman or governor or something of Florida. And I just really felt like that was an opportunity to get a black woman or somebody else who was growing in politics in Florida to help bring in new new voters. But when you bring in that same type of candidate, you know, it's always hard to encourage new voters to come out and vote for that person when they have had some experience there. And then I know in Arizona, you know, we uh, I believe Mark Kelly won that. The governor, I believe her name is Carrie Lake, she lost. And so there was a lot that happened. Um, there was also a congressional race in New Hampshire. Can't remember the young woman's name, but she ran against Chris Pappas in New Hampshire. Chris Pappas, Congressman Pappas, he actually won, uh, but she would have been one of the youngest, per- I think the youngest person in Congress, and she would have been a modern Republican, which would have been bad for all of us. So. A lot happened. I think now the focus is on 2024 of what's going to happen. Uh, I'm hoping that whatever's on the Biden's agenda, that there are some key things that we can get done and get passed. I think it's important not to take it, not to take for granted two years we do have, because really you only have one year because the last year is going to be the focus is going to be on campaigning. 
And so we really want to get a statement out there of what the Biden administration has done. And, you know, me as a Democrat, I'm here to support what the Biden administration is doing, hoping they can get some things passed as we move forward. And as we look to 2024, where there'll be more Senate races up as well as more House races up as well. I think it's very interesting also to see um, you mentioned everyone who Donald most a lot of people who Donald Trump supported lost their races. And also you kind of see a little bit of a media turn on Donald Trump. The New York Post came out with an article, you know, so it's interesting to kind of see that shift. What do you think it says about the direction of the country? A lot of outlets were projecting a so-called red wave and it ended up being a lot closer than people imagined. What do you what do you think that says about the direction the country is going in? Yeah, I think the direction is honestly, I think it's still up in the air. But I think it, it had this these times have showed people that a lot of these folks who did run for office were running on the claim that the 2020 election was stolen. Yes. And that was not substantive for your average everyday American. Uh, folks were concerned about health care and housing and education and are the businesses going to stay afloat? The conversation around if the election was stolen or not wasn't really so much important. You know, when you're a business owner and you're a small business owner and you want your business to stay afloat and stay vibrant, especially if you're a second or third or even a first generation business owner, uh, you're concerned about who's going to come in and bring in some policy that'll make other businesses like yours successful in this economy. Not so much uh, what happened during the 2020 election, which anytime you hear anybody, and they're always Republicans, talk about the 2020 election being stolen, they always say, well, there's evidence that A, B, C, or Y. But there's never really a- any evidence. President Biden won the election. He won it clear and straight. And so that's what I think the country began to see, is that the, the rhetoric around who won the 2020 election was not as important as the critical issues that affect our lives every single day. I do think there is a still a, a sort of a MAGA wave that is out there that we have to be very careful of. And remember, some of these states, those elections were pretty close. Yes. Um, and a lot of these Republicans are, are here to stay. What I mean is by MAGA Republicans, they're here to stay and they're going to continue to either gain steam or, or perhaps even grow over time. And I think that was a part of Donald Trump's political strategy is getting enough of these folks in office so there would be this sort of quid pro quo. You know, now that you're in, you do everything you can to help me get in. He's an artist as a puppet master of putting people in place who can turn around and help him in his own quest. And, and eventually, you know, he'll leave them on the back burner. I will just add, you know, a lot of people have been giving former Vice President Mike Pence a lot of credit uh, recently about his stand against Donald Trump. My thing is, Mike Pence knew who he was working with. He knew who he was working for. And everybody who worked under Donald Trump's administration knew they knew he was a liar. They knew he was the narcissist. They knew he was no good. They knew he didn't really love the American people. And then when things hit the fan, then everybody all of a sudden wanted to kind of mark their distance. And I'm like, no, he was with the guy for four years. You can't use one week and say, well, you know, I've got different feelings now. You kind of showed yourself to the country about who you are and where your values are. And, you know, I think 2024 is uh, just like any election is going to be a tough, tight election. We do have President Biden, but, you know, people have mentioned his age. That might be a concern for some people and for others, folks, it might not be a concern at all. But I, I do think, you know, whatever happens, we, we've got an uphill battle. But if the Democratic Party can continue to speak to 
the needs of Democrats across the country and speak to the needs of people across the country. Remember, health care and education and housing and child care and medic. When we speak to those issues. You can use that to, to garner people to get out and vote for you, even independents and moderates and people who don't really participate in voting. I think that should be the goal and strategy of the Democratic Party as we approach 2024. Absolutely. And to just add on some of the things you said, I want to note also that there were a few election deniers um, on the ballot in certain states that lost elections. Key Secretary of State, you know, where election deniers lost elections. And so I, I agree with your point about that not really being a determining factor for people's votes. And also before the midterms, I, I did an episode called Political Crossroads. And I said that we're kind of at a crossroads where there are people who respect the rule of law, who respect the peaceful transfer of power. And, you know, there are those of us that believe in it and those of us that don't. And so I think that the country definitely spoke by, you know, rejecting a lot of those election deniers and people that were just kind of hanging on to that. And like you said, people are concerned with the things that affect their everyday lives. Even myself being someone that was, you know, at times critical of the Biden administration, wanting to see, you know, more legislation geared towards that. I was very pleased with the student loan um, reform. I know it's kind of up in the air now, but just to see that being passed and, you know, for people to say, OK, this is something that will affect my life. I think definitely I agree that if Democrats continue in that direction, that they will definitely be successful. You know, when you think about student debt reform, I think a lot of people's minds have started to change. It took a lot of time because typically the first argument is, well, you took out that debt. Yes. And that's true. Yes. But how else were we going to afford college? How else were we going to bring our families uh, out of poverty? How else were we going to find ways to advance ourselves? Because there were no other jobs or careers where you could, you know, make decent money. There are some now, but you know, when me and you were going to college, which is not even really that long ago, no, uh, you know, these were the conversations, and so we begin to realize that black and brown people, and women, and even seniors are some of the people who carry the most student loan debt. That it's not um, your upper middle class and rich people who carry student loan debt, obviously. It's the poor people every day. Yes. And so how can poor people or people of lower income, socioeconomic status get out of poverty when they finally do get that nice degree from whatever university, but they have to pay back all this money that compounds over time? It's like we find ourselves in another trap. And then when you add in the layer, you know, trying to be a homeowner, trying to be a parent trying to invest in your family and your community. How do you do that when, you're, when your student loan debt payment is $800 a month? Yes. You know, places like Boston where housing prices are sky high and people are paying, you know, at minimum $4,000 a month for a mortgage. How can you afford $800 for a student loan or $1,200 for a student loan payment? So I think the push of uh, certain key politicians and Grassroots organizers um, raising this issue really began to capture the attention of the Biden administration saying we have to act. And then the other layer for me uh, with me is simply the pandemic. You know, we already had these issues. We went to the pandemic. It made it hard on everybody. You know, the economy is not really going to get back on track. It's going to take time. This is a way to help speed track that. 
This is a way to help get families into home ownership. This is a way to help families keep money in their pockets by getting rid of student loan debt. Now, we know it's in the courts right now, the Supreme Court. I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will act in a way that will allow this to happen. Because for me, as much as I celebrate the $10,000 and up to $20,000, the need has to be met. And, and that means more money. And, you know, we're a democracy with the power and the possibility and the creativity to do it. You know, anytime we go to war, we find money. Anytime we do these other things, we find money. But when it comes to time to take care of people's lives, to free them up from debt, all of a sudden the conversation is, where are we going to get the money? It, it reminds me of, of, of people who always buy expensive clothes, you know, and then when it comes time to buy salad to eat healthy, <laughs> then they're saying, well, how am I going to get the money? <laughs> well, you got Jordans and Jays and Gucci bags all around your house. How about you shift some of that money from the things that really don't make an impact on your life and shift it to things that really make a serious impact? And one of the things I, I hear, you know, your boss say this, I think really it's about empathy. And one of the reasons why I even started this show is because I felt like in conversations, empathy is kind of the driving force. You know, a lot of times there's empathy for corporations and billionaires and things like that and not enough empathy for working class people and those struggles. And, you know, it sounds kind of feelings based and kind of woo woo, but the people who there's empathy for those kind of drives decisions. And I think people just having more empathy at the end of the day in terms of how these public policy decisions affect the lives of everyday people. And so I was glad to see the Biden administration come around to that because Biden historically, you know, being fiscally conservative, that was that was a stretch for him, you know, to do that. And so, again, I, I agree with you. I really hope the Supreme Court honors that. And I think in terms of voters, when you start making, you know, decisions that impact the lives of everyday people, people remember that. And I think that drives you to the polls. And so, you know, I, I definitely agree with that. I'm glad he was stressed because sometimes you have to make big steps to move people forward. Yes. And those steps are often uh, they're not the most comfortable. You get a lot of backlash. But in the end, you'll see when you look back that it made a positive influence on so many people's lives. One thing I think about, Whitney, is if I were president and let's say my political history has always been really good. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's been mixed. Let's say it's been bad. I would want to go down as a president who took a risk in faith. Yes. I took a step in trying to move our country forward by eliminating student loan debt for the next generations. Uh, I would have rather had that on my record and say that it was successful or even if it wasn't as successful, I would rather have taken that risk because I believe that that's what it means to be a leader. That's what it means to take think about not just my generation, but generations to come. To your point about empathy, you know, we often find ourselves having more empathy for large corporations that don't that have so many tax breaks and not empathy for families, individuals like you and I. Who, who contribute so much to this country. We do need empathy in our politics because sometimes there have been political decisions that we have made that have not helped people. You think about that, we think about the crime bill in the 90s and how it locked up and how it put mass incarceration on a speed track, a snowball effect. We now realize that that was not a good bill. So what you do is now you put forth policies 
that helped to directly undo the policy we did 20, 30 years ago that had made a negative effect on people's lives and implement policies that positively lift people, heal people, restore people, move people forward and give people faith in their democracy and in their country. In terms of Biden and 2024, what's your take on that? I know over the phone we talked about I know the media is really focused on Trump, but I really wish the media focused more on DeSantis, because in my opinion, DeSantis is Trump 2.0. He is like a tropical storm right now. And by the time 2024 comes up, I feel like he may be a category four, category five hurricane. And I think politically he's more popular than Donald Trump. And I think I don't hear enough talk about, you know, DeSantis. What, what's your take on that? We got to be careful. That's my take. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is uh, uh, like Donald Trump, but a little bit more polished. He might be a little bit more easygoing for a lot of Republicans. You know, sometimes I think about Trump as the sweet tea that has too much sugar. <laughs> And DeSantis might have a little bit more stevia in him. So it's easier Mm. to drink down than just the regular sugar person. But they still got sugar in it. (laughs) And that sugar can still affect your body and your life. Um, Look, you know, he's been successful in Florida as a Republican governor. Uh, He won against a very, very uh, popular Democrat uh, in Andrew Gillum. Mm -hmm. He won against uh, Charlie Chris. He's been with Florida throughout the pandemic and Florida is the number one key swing state in our country. Uh, so goes Florida. Uh, so goes the country uh, or so goes the election. Rather, mm-hmm. I-, I think he is the greatest test for Donald Trump. And I still don't think Donald Trump has it so fully solidified, mainly because of what happened during those midterms. If all those folks he endorsed did win, I probably would say, OK, it would be tough for uh, Governor DeSantis, but I think we should keep our eye on him. I think both candidates would be horrible for our country, would take all take our country back 20, 30 years. I do think Donald Trump would do more in destroying our democracy, given that the man just said we need to get rid of, you know, bypass the Constitution. Like, who says that and runs for, for president? For president, so, <laughs> yeah. I think, we, number one, we have to be careful. Number two, I think within this year, this is a good time for a lot of grassroots groundwork to begin to organize people within the Democratic Party to start looking at Democratic principles. Now, the Democratic Party, like Republican Party and any other party or any other system, is not perfect. But it is the party that does progress the country forward on issues that are very, very much outstanding. I really appreciate what President Biden did by the uh, federal expungement of people with federal marijuana convictions. Yes. That that goes back to my point of knowing that the crime bill was no good, but now putting in policies, being intentional about putting in those policies that begin to move the country forward. We get someone like DeSantis or even a Trump in, we won't ever get those things done. Uh, There will be nothing but more violence, more vitriol, and a potential collapse of our democracy. So we cannot forget how formidable DeSantis is, but even organizers in Florida can already start to organize a lot of people who traditionally don't participate in voting and even working on moderates as well. 
And so we've, we've kind of touched on this, but I just kind of want to go over it again. What do you think the focus should be um, for the Biden administration over the next two years? And I think you made a great point about that last year is really a campaign year. So over the next yeah. year, what are some things you would like to see? The focus should you know, still be on helping this country get out of this pandemic. The focus should be on putting forth bills and policies that, that get people back to work that create opportunities for people to work. Uh, you, you just can never forget how important it is in the country for someone to have a job and, and what that means to them personally, uh, civically to have a job. I, I think uh, we should be focusing still on, uh, you know, obviously student debt, the big eyes will be on highly reversed and uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, Roe v. Wade. Yes. So, so th- those are some of the things for me that are just, you know, really, really top of mind, you know, focusing on businesses, education as well for our, our young students, making sure each and every school has the federal funding needed so that they can continue to thrive within this environment. So my answer seems kind of general, but it's true. Those are the things we still need to really focus on and, and work on in order to win. So I wish I had a list of, of the policies or things that they want to do, but I would say that Strategy should be trying to get these things done and get them done as quickly as possible, because uh, when the end of 2023 comes, you, your, your focus shifts a bit, focusing on uh, TPS issues around Haiti and, and how we treat some other countries uh, yes. outside of Ukraine. You know, we've given Ukraine a lot of help, which is good. But what about some of these other countries, mainly where black and brown people come from? You know, how are we going to begin to talk about immigration in a way that has empathy? support and, and, and understanding while trying to keep families connected and united. So those are some of the things for me that 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 are top of mind. Uh, I think the Republican Party would like to defray and, you know, talk about, you know, those things that are really true and how there's no wall and people just coming in here. But we can make the narrative and say, well, we've kept families together. We've encouraged people to come here. And when people have come to this country, they bought homes. Right. Yes. They've got a solid education. They've started families. They've started businesses. I think that's what the message should be. And I think that will help the Democratic Party uh, and whoever is the nominee in winning uh, in 2024. That's such a great point, because I realize sometimes it's, it's not even about what a party has or has not done. It's about the messaging and how you talk about and how you frame a lot of issues And that's something that Democrats have, you know, had critiques on, like having, you know, a messaging problem. And sometimes I hate to see people play in those right wing kind of distractions because they don't go to their convention and talk about we're going to do this. We're going to do that. They don't talk about, you know, their platforms. They just focus on the messaging. And so I really like the way that you frame that in terms of immigration empathy, you know, for countries, you know, with black and brown immigrants and talking about the contributions that they make to this society, because often the conversation is about what they take away and, you know, this and that. And it's really about the contract should really be about the contributions that they make. I totally agree. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Democrat, but all I hear Republicans do is blaming everything on Democrats. Yes. You know, this guy turns green. It was our fault. Yes. If, if two people don't have a job, it's Democrats fault. Yes. And for me, that's not good messaging. But the more you hear this, it can pull you in and starts to sound right 
and familiar. One way you can detract that is by having your own messages say, hey, this is what we've done. This is how we built families. This is how we provided care to our seniors. This is how we supported our youth, especially those that are in public schools. Uh, this is how we've supported families staying together. This is how we've supported people re-entering our society after years of being behind bars, behind the wall. Uh, I think that's the messaging that the Democratic Party should really center its message on, directly affecting, positively affecting people's everyday lives. You know, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, Biden has said he's going to run again. What's your take on that? Has, has he wavered on that? Or, you know, is there any talk about him not running? You know, what's, what are we to make of that? Because it is, you know, kind of up in the air. Yeah, well, he definitely has the momentum right now. He has the Senate, can get some things potentially done within his administration. Uh, he has the momentum in the sense that many of those member of moderate Republicans did not win uh, in their election. I would say for a lot of people, the conversation is around age and if he's able, because it does take a lot to run a presidential campaign while being president and serve another four years. So uh, I think right now the ball's in his court and however he pivots will have drastic effects in, 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 in a good way, I believe, on the Democratic Party. If he's not going to run, if he would put his arm and support around someone who is going to run, I think that could that would definitely potentially help us out. But the ball is in his court right now. And I think, again, the next year, too, sort of gives people an idea of if, if he can still continue to govern at this excellence or at this rate, the way the American uh, you know, public wants to see. So uh, I know there have been other names that have been mentioned that have been brought out. Right now, I think it's still just a little bit too early to make any predictions. But again, the ball is in his court. And I think, you know, he's able to get some things done, which I hope he can. And I believe he can. Then I'll give him even more momentum to run for 2024. Absolutely. that That's a great point. He's he's had some great wins as of this year. And so, you know, you're right. If he can continue with that momentum. Again, I was a person that was very critical you know, kind of after Roe v. Wade, a, a, like a lot of the country, I just felt like, man, do something, you know. But as of late, I like the direction that the administration has gone in. I like the aggressiveness <laughs> of the White House. You know, there were so many Republicans talking about student loan, you know, the discharge of student loan debt. And the White House was on Twitter like, hey, all of you guys have had these PPP loans, you know, discharge. And so I like to see that. Um, more offensive stance. And they didn't so, say nothing about that, did they? They did not. They said they took more in PPP loans than they took in student loan debt. They didn't have nothing to say about that help. <laughs> they were but silent. When other folks are trying to get help. And I think, again, that goes to the messaging. The student loan debt release is not for Democrats. That's for everybody. It's for everyone. It's for Republicans. It's for people who don't vote. Because I guarantee you, even people who don't like politics would have taken, taken that benefit. Absolutely. Just like with PPP. Uh, but we don't make our decisions based on who likes us or who doesn't like us. We make our decisions based on what's going to help people, what's going to help American citizens, and what's going to help move our country forward in a much more positive way. We are in a moment where we're coming out of really 400 years of bad policies. Yes. And we have been enlightened by those bad policies. We've seen how they've hurt Black people and brown people and even more. Now we want to start moving the country forward in a different direction. 
that opens the door and doesn't close the door, that includes and not excludes, that heals and not provides more trauma. We want to be that way going forward. I think that's the messaging uh, we have to keep, not just for 2024, but 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 in all congressional seats. Uh, that has to be the messaging because that's what's going to move us forward. That's what's going to keep and make our lives, my life and your life much better. Uh, because if we're not careful, uh, Whitney, we could spend the next 20, 30 years of our lives trying to dig back out of it. And by the time we dig out of it, it's going to almost be too late. It's going to be over for our kids and grandkids. Yes. But we have this moment right now. And I'm excited to be a part of, of, of helping to move the country forward. So this is a little lightning round where we can't be all work and no play. So this is a quick little lightning round, quick little painless questions just to get to know a little bit more about you. So the first question I'm going to ask is, what's your favorite song? Ooh, my favorite song. That is a good question. What's moving your spirit? What moves your spirit? What moves my spirit? There's a song by the Mississippi Mass Choir called Your Grace and Mercy. That song mm. always I love that. I love yes. that. So the second question, what's your favorite book? Ooh, favorite book. That's a good question, too. I'm thinking in my head, thinking in my head. I, I love the autobiography of um, Dr. King. Mm. There's a lot of lessons in there, a lot of power in that book when you read it. So the autobiography of Dr. King. I actually have not read that. I'm going to have to dive into that, especially with the upcoming um MLK holiday. I haven't read that. Yes. Huh. Yes. Good book. Really good book. I'm going to have to read that. So the last question is, what's something that brings you joy? Uh, blackness, being black, mm-hmm. black music, mm-hmm. black food, black habits. Um, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, cooking soul food. I've been trying to eat a little healthier recently, <laughs> but the problem I've had is I don't want to give up my culture. Yes. And I realized that the food that I've eaten, we call soul food, it's a part of my DNA. So yes. I haven't given it up. I've limited how much <laughs> I eat. Uh, but Thanksgiving, I was cooking up turkey, wings, smothered, collard greens, candy, yams, black eyed peas, you name it. <laughs> uh, that's what gives me joy. Listen to black music, seeing black people thrive, seeing black women know and understand their wealth and going out there, winning the bag, winning the degrees and doing good. That's what gives me joy. And and as a pastor, preaching gives me joy too. I love that. I love that. I love that. We are kindred spirits in that. Look, Boston hasn't changed that Georgia Southern, you know, you, you can't. Still there. Same thing in Nebraska. I'm in the Midwest and it's different, but the, the Southern Mississippi, Georgia, you know, it never leaves you. So I'm glad to see you still. And yesterday that. I was at a, uh, we had our founders day. I'm the vice president of the Boston Alphas, which is the largest alpha chapter in all of New England. And we had our oh. founders day event. And I love being around the brotherhood. Oh yeah. Even when I came up from Savannah, I came to Boston. Those the first folks I found, you know, there was obviously some of your soul roars were there. Yeah. You know, I love that. I love that. That gives me joy. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's about community. It's about community. Community. I love that. I love that. So, Art, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm so glad to have you. Where can people find you on socials and stay updated on your work? 
People can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is the same. It's Reverend1906. All right. Reverend1906. You can find me there. Please DM me with any questions or comments or invites or ask. You know, people do ask me to come speak and lecture and preach. I do all of that. And on Facebook, if you just type in my name, Art J. Gordon, you'll find me there as well. On Facebook, Art J. Gordon, as well as LinkedIn, Art J. Gordon. I would love to connect with anyone uh, who's been able to tune in to this podcast. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Art. This has been an amazing conversation. So excited. We finally got together. We've been playing phone tag, schedule tag for a while. And so I'm so glad. You know, I still think they are your unofficial first guest. <laughs> you you are. You unofficial. were supposed to be my first guest. <laughs> You are. But, but I was still the first. It was unofficial. Unofficial first so I'll, I'll guest. That. <laughs> That'll be what, what they say on social media. A win is a win. A that win was my is win a right win. <laughs> a win is a win. A win is a win is a win. It might have been how you want it, but it's still a win. That was my win. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much, Art, for joining me. Thank you, Whitney. And I look forward to working with you and making our country a much better, safer, and more empowered place. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. Before you go, make sure you subscribe to the show so you can be updated as soon as new episodes go live. That's it for this week's episode and for this year as I will be taking a little break for the holidays. I just want to take this time out to thank each and every person that has taken the time to listen to the show. I genuinely mean it when I say thank you for listening after each episode. I also have to say thank you to my amazing guest. And last but not least, thank you to my amazing production partners, Richard and Margie. I can honestly wholeheartedly say that this show would not be possible without the both of them. Because of them, I'm able to just nerd out, do my research, focus on interviewing the guests. And they come in, they do all the tech stuff. They make the show sound so crisp and professional. And so I am forever grateful to the both of them. I wish everyone a safe and restful holiday and a happy new year. I'm Whitney Richardson. This is Political Evolution, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.